Hi, everybody. Welcome, and thanks for coming today. I'm Laura Odato, the Cato Institute's Director for Government Affairs, and today we're going to be talking about the constitutional issues surrounding the Dodd-Frank financial reform. Continues to be in the news a lot recently as the rulemaking is continuing to happen and different groups are weighing in, and we have two great panelists today to talk a little bit more in depth about that topic. First up is Representative Scott Garrett, who represents New Jersey's 5th Congressional District, and he was first elected to Congress in 2002. He's a member of the House Budget Committee and the House Financial Services Committee, where he chairs the Subcommittee on Capital Markets and Government-Sponsored Enterprises. Representative Garrett is also the Chairman and Founder of the Congressional Constitution Caucus, which provides a forum for education on constitutional principles and limited government. Prior to his election to Congress, Representative Garrett served in the New Jersey General Assembly from 1990 to 2002. As the Senior Assemblyman for the 24th Legislative District, Assistant Majority Leader and Chairman of the Banking and Insurance Committee. Following that will be Louise Bennett, who is the Associate Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute. In her role at Cato, she focuses on the impact of financial regulatory reform since 2008, including the attempts to address too big to fail, the effects of reforms on non-bank financial companies, the Volcker Rule, and issues relating to bank resolution and insolvency. Prior to joining Cato, she was a Senior Associate in the New York Office of Davis Polk and Wardwell, and most recently, her practice focused on bank regulation, in particular, advising financial market participants on the impact of the Dodd-Frank Act and its implementation, which is very relevant to this topic. With that, I'd welcome Representative Garrett. No, no, no. Hold down the applause, please. <laughs> it's just a small room, and it's thundering up here. So thank you for the, um, the kind introduction. Um, thank you also for the uh, tuna sandwich, and I appreciate you all coming to um, talk about Dodd-Frank for a little bit. Uh, I do appreciate uh, Cato um, putting on these forums like they do so uh, th so often here. I uh, appreciate the fact of being on a uh, panel on similar people with defending of liberty as Cato does, so I appreciate that. Let me just begin by saying, though, despite all the accolades, that I think the title is a little bit off. Dodd-Frank is not a piece of legislation or of law that is of questionable um, constitutionality. I would say that it is without question unconstitutional. And I, for that reason, I say I opposed Dodd-Frank when it came through uh, the House for a vote, um, not simply because it was a bad bill that was done um, in a less than um, efficient manner, that we could have done it more efficiently and such, but basically because it was unconstitutional. And those are really two very different things, to say that I'm vo voting against something because I think it's just not done well versus voting against something because it uh, is unconstitutional. It is in, um, one thing to oppose a bill to say, well, I think I am smarter than the other side or have more wisdom than they do, but it's entirely another thing to oppose a law because, well, because it basically violates the very principles upon which this country was founded and upon the founding fathers' documents, i.e., the Constitution. As this audience knows, I believe that uh, our Constitution establishes a government basically of restraint. It enumerates a series of few and defined powers. It defines those uh, powers and responsibilities among three branches of government. And in doing so, it basically establishes a system of checks and balances, um, in which basically if one branch becomes overly ambitious, it is encountered by uh, countervailing balances from one or two of the other branches. But rather than establish a regulatory regime uh, that is consistent with those constitutional principles, Dodd-Frank, then, is the great exception to the Constitution. Dodd-Frank does so by doing what? By creating not just one, but two agencies that are granted basically unlimited power to define and pass rules to regulate 
every conceivable financial transaction and does so without being accountable to anyone. These two agencies, of course, are CFPB, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and FSOC, the Financial Stability Oversight Council. And they basically are effectively uh, the judge, the jury, and you could also say the executioner of the institutions they deal with and the American economy as well. So what I'm going to do right now in the next few minutes is to argue that the manner in which these agencies operate are uh, without question in violation of the Constitution. And my arguments, I will also add this, are not purely academic in nature. I will also basically show that in overstepping these constitutional frameworks and boundaries of legitimate government, they actually have real effect, real negative effect on real people like you and I. And so the best place to start is the topic dealing with most attention in the news, and that, of course, is the unconstitutional recess appointment of uh, Richard Cardray over as director over at the CFPB. Now, we step back for a moment. Before President Obama was President Obama, of course, he was Senator Obama, not very long for Senator, Senator Obama. But in that short period of time, he must have been amazingly, incredibly perceptive. Because he knows now, as president, better than the Senate does exactly when the, how, when the Senate is actually in recess. So a recess appointment made when the Senate is not in recess is devastating to the system for a number of reasons. First, the president's actions effectively erase the advice and consent clause of the Senate from the apportionment laws. And it basically then goes back to what I said before. It imperils the checks on the executive powers that the founders thought was necessary to do what? To prevent the emergency emergence of tyranny in the government. Secondly, well, secondly, technically speaking, it opens up another large can of worms. Uh, when the president recess appointed Richard Cordray as director, at the same time, as you probably know, he also appointed three individuals over the NLRB, National Labor Relations Board, which the courts have already struck down as unconstitutional. And now since the court's ruling, and that was back a couple months ago, back in January, the, the NRL rulings during the tenure when he was in, when they were in, uh, when those illegal appointments were made, there are no less than 72 cases in federal court right now challenging the rules that came about. So if the NLB rulings can be challenged, and they will be, doesn't it follow that the CFPB rules will be challenged as well? And if they are, and they probably will be, won't this have huge, huge implications for all of us? For example, if the CFPB adopts a qualified mortgage rule, um, or as commonly known as QM, this rule basically effectively defines for all of us what is a what a proper or qualified mortgage is in the country that you may get for uh, a new house that you buy. Um, so it defines the terms of those loans for all of us. So we have a potential situation here now, right? If that is challenged, and if we find that Mr. Cordray was illegally, unconstitutionally appointed, and now sits there as an illegitimate head of CFPB, what happens to all of the rules? If that happens, it is only a matter of time before the QM will be challenged. And if that happens, what will happen? You will have effectively chaos in the housing mortgage market situation. Uncertainty, which we have already, which is what we're trying to undo, will just be exacerbated for any potential new homeowner going to the bank, going to the bank and trying to get a loan. But let's take, for example, let's be optimistic. Let's assume for a moment and pretend that the CFPB director was appointed in a constitutional manner, maybe the Senate confirms his nomination. Even if that is the case, I would suggest 
that the CFPB is still an unconstitutional monster. Look, the CFPB mission is to prevent practices that it is empowered to define as unfair, deceptive, and abusive. And with the limitless grant of authority, there are no checks, if you will, placed on them. Secondly, it is well known that the CFPB nullifies Congress's greatest power to, as part of a check on the executive. And you're all asking yourself, what is that great power? The power of the purse. It was James Madison who called the power of the purse and the power that Congress has the most complete and effective weapon we have. Now, Dodd-Frank basically disarms that weapon by funding the CFPB how? Through the Federal Reserve. They simply have to ask for the money, and the Federal Reserve gives it. It does not go through the regular appropriation process in Congress. Add all that, and there's even more problems. CFPB director is exempt from executive branch oversight. While the director is appointed by the president for a five-year term, he can stay on there basically indefinitely if no successor is confirmed in the Senate. And the director can be removed only under strictly limited circumstances and not for anything but for policy reasons. So you take all that, take the fact that CFP is headed by a singular regulator with unlimited power, is not accountable to the legislative or the judicial branch, and cannot be removed until the Senate confirms someone else, there's a problem. On top of that, I also stress that this is not simply an academic exercise, as I said at the very beginning. It is worth noting the consequences that result from um, Dodd-Frank's violation to the Constitution or go in other areas as well. Let's take, for example, the one of salaries. As of right now, there's almost 1,000 people working over the CFPB, 958 to be exact. 577 of them, over 60% of the entire staff, make over $100,000. 20% of them make over $150,000. 5% of them make over $200,000. Lest we forget that uh, people working in the cabinet for the president make less than that, $199,000. Now, you might think, well, that's all necessary in order to get people over there working at, uh, with great talent. But just mind you this, and hopefully it will not be a rush to the door. Summer interns working at the CFPB can make on an annualized basis $40,000, um, which is more than a lot of people, as you know, working on the Hill right now. But really, you may stand back and think, should this surprise any of us? When you give an agency immense powers to achieve an all-competent mandate with no one basically watching over them, where there are no consequences for the actions, the CFP clearly is, feels justified in doing what we might here think is outrageous. And this is what results from a lack of accountability. And if that frightens you at all, there's more as I say on late-night TV. Um, Title I of Dodd-Frank creates the FSOC, which is charged with acting as a systemic regulator, preventing too big to fail, and of course, they will prevent all future bank failures in this country. Um, with a mandate such as this, the power of the FSOC cannot be overstated. See, the FSOC has a statutory ability to promulgate its own rules and regulations, as well as the authority to decide which non-bank financial institutions would be subject basically to them going out and seizing them. Additionally, FSOC is empowered with the ability to control the activities of any financial institution simply by a two-thirds vote of its board. Now, if that sounds unconstitutional to anyone in the room, you are not alone. It must have sounded unconstitutional to the uh, drafters, the people who wrote the bill, because when they wrote it, um, the way they wrote it was they said the court would not be authorized to review the rules on which uh, the FSOC interprets their uh, Dodd-Frank going forward. So we knew all along that Congress had to do to enact unconstitutional law, 
was difficult. Now we know the easy way to do it. Just pass a bill and say in the bill that uh, the courts cannot rule it unconstitutional, and there you have it. It took us 225 years how to figure it out. Dodd-Frank made us uh, be able to get beyond the Constitution just by, by sticking it in legislation. Fortunately, we all know in this room, because you're pretty smart people, that's not exactly how the Constitution works. You have uh, Article Three of the Constitution basically guarantees what the uh, independence of the judiciary. And as again, as they say on night, late night TV, if that's not bad enough, there's even more. Title II of Dodd-Frank deals with orderly liquidation authority. Under this title, the government can decide if a financial company, a financial company, is in danger of default, and if that company's failure poses a threat to the financial stability of the U.S. economy. So those are the two-pronged tests. If the Treasury Department decides yes to one and two, then the Treasury basically, and FSOC, can basically replace the current law that we've known for a couple hundred years, basically the bankruptcy law, and puts the whole institution into where? Receivership. And this type of power is unprecedented. It grants immense powers to really a handful of unelected bureaucrats. It powers them to do pick winners and losers, and decides who gets liquefied and who goes um, is sustained, and it does all this against the interest of the investors. So if you think about that, Title II not only puts the company at risk, but more importantly, it puts the investors' rights at risk as well. It eliminates any meaningful judicial review and, and due process. So once the liquidation process begins, the company, by, by the Treasury Secretary, the company has one day, 24 hours, to convince a federal judge that this should not happen. And if the company, their lawyer, is unable to do this Herculean task, liquidation process will begin, even though an appeal is pending. An appeal, of course, can take days, weeks, or months. Meanwhile, it's all being liquefied. And on top of that, and for good order, Dodd-Frank prohibits the courts from reviewing whether the Treasury decision was constitutional or even necessary to protect the financial stability. And meanwhile, while Treasury is determining the soundness of an institution, Dodd-Frank prohibits that very same company that they're looking at from disclosing that threat of liquidation to the public or its investors. So if you think about all that, you may say this is an, invest, uh, an attack on investment in this country, and it is. It's also an attack on the investors. First, investors are prohibited from being informed that the company that they invested in will soon cease to exist in wiping out their interests. Secondly, then the company is placed in receivership there is basically no room for judicial review. As a result, there's basically no way for investors to be able to recoup their investment either during or after. So Dodd-Frank's order liquidation authority does not merely violate the Constitution's separation of powers. It also violates the Fifth Amendment guarantee of due process and the guarantee of a uniform bankruptcy laws as well. So ended up it's bad enough when Congress acts in a way that violates a single provision of the Constitution. It is amazingly and infinitely worse when Congress works to virtually eliminate all checks and balances in one fell swoop, like we do in Dodd-Frank. Dodd-Frank basically untethers the agency that it creates from all three branches, as I said before, um, where you're supposed to have checks and balances, effectively destroying the entire notion of checks and balances. And wait, there is still more. I still have not said anything about the doctrine of non-delegation in which Congress cannot surrender its legislative authority to be performed by another entity, which Dodd-Frank does in page after page after page of this 2,000-page document. So I'm sure that the constitutional arguments that I've outlined right now are not comprehensive. I'm sure there are more. But we are learning firsthand why James Madison said many years ago that laws should not be 
quote, so voluminous that it cannot be read, or so coherent, such as this, that they cannot be understood. So while I'm sure that most Americans have not read Dodd-Frank, and some of those that did, I'm sure, don't understand it, the effects of Dodd-Frank on them are very real. As I've outlined from the illegal appointment of the director to the potential effects of home mortgage financing industry to the high salaries over the CFPB to the demolition of investor rights to the violation of the Constitution and it all, it results in real, real consequences that will hit the pocketbooks basically of every American. In short, Dodd-Frank is the perfect piece of progressive law. It removes the people's representatives from the policymaking decision and in their place and trust their unaccountable so-called experts that we have down in Washington with unlimited control of the economy. So as I will end where I began, Dodd-Frank is without question and unconstitutional and incompatible with our founding principles and our founding documents. And so with that, I look forward to hearing how Cato is going to fix the whole thing. <laughs> Thank you. I think after hearing the salary scale um, at the CFPB, they may be flooded with some applications shortly. Um, so at the risk of disclosing my age, some of you may remember an independent film that came out a number of years ago. It was actually an Australian film, and it's about a, a challenge uh, to imminent domain. So a guy is, has his house taken away um, so that the state can build a highway, and he goes to court and he says to the judge, you know, this is unconstitutional, and the judge says, which provision of the Constitution exactly does this violate? And he says, the vibe of it. And I think if there was ever an act or, or an act that violates the vibe of the U.S. Constitution, it is Dodd-Frank, um, because, mostly because it creates very significant and real issues for the rule of law. Um, and I think it's worth looking. There's actually really two levels that you can look at, it at and, and um, Representative Garrett has covered the one quite, uh, quite comprehensively, which is the act itself. But you also need to look at, at, at an act like Dodd-Frank, um, the rulemaking that is being released under the act and the implications of that. Because Dodd-Frank, the way I look at Dodd-Frank is it's really a mandate. It's a mandate to the, the various regulatory agencies to do a lot of things. And so we need to look at a little bit what, uh, what they're doing and they're only about halfway through the process and that's worth uh, remembering it. Um, so before I get into the nuances of the constitutional challenge that's kind of working its way through the court, which Representative Garrett touched on, I think it's worthwhile setting out what makes good legal, law drafting or statute drafting and what makes good rulemaking. Um, and why is Dodd-Frank such a significant de departure from this? Because we can talk in a sort of abstract way, but it's important to sort of highlight why it's such a problem. And I think it was over a century ago, Oliver Wendell Holmes noted that the tendency of law must always be to narrow the field of uncertainty. So, and this is really what I think we commonly mean when we say the rule of law. So laws must be clear, they must be certain, and they must be knowable in advance. Uh, and under the U.S. Constitution, the rule of law provides certainty and transparency, and that is necessary to protect both individual liberty and, importantly, to support economic growth. 
And this also translates into the regulatory environment. I think in, in 1980, uh, President Ronald Reagan had, had a coordinating committee on economic policy, and they sent him a memo say, setting out you know, a new course of action for regulatory environment. Um, and so basically they said the key regulatory conditions for long-term economic growth include a stable political, regulatory, and tax environment that is not excessively burdensome, complex, and distortionary, and a stable non-inflationary monetary policy. And then the committee also came up with several things that the, the new president should keep in mind, and they said you need a long-term, coherent, stable viewpoint, because business people in particular plan, and, and, and households, plan for the long term, not for the short or medium term. And also, you have to remember that whatever measures you put in place to deal with one issue almost always have unintended consequences, so you have to think about that. They also said that policy objectives need to be coherent and announced publicly. So why is this relevant in a debate about Dodd-Frank? Dodd-Frank, both the statute itself and the rulemaking under the statute, marks a major departure from this. Um, and I think that forms the, the bedrock of the two key constitutional uh, challenges that uh, Representative Garrett outlined, which I will discuss now as well. I'm going to start firstly with a challenge to the orderly li liquidation authority. Um, and I will say in advance that I find it kind of ironic that the orderly liquidation authority is one of the few parts of Dodd-Frank that is actually related to the 2008 financial crisis. I think a lot of bankruptcy lawyers agree that we possibly do need a new bankruptcy regime that deals specifically with large multifunctional banking organizations because large multifunctional banking organizations go into different types of proceedings, they're contradictory, it's messy, but unfortunately OLA isn't, that, uh, isn't the solution to that and for the reasons um, I'll outline in a minute. It's also worth mentioning the, the FSOC, um, which Representative Garrett outlined, because People will often tell you, well, Title I and Title II of Dodd-Frank are unrelated. They're not. Um, if you are de designated systemic by the FSOC, um, and uh, the FSOC, by the way, has the power to declare any financial firm systemically important, um, and they can base that on any risk-related factors. There are some things that they can look at, usually size and whatever, but at the end of the day, they can, any, any risk-related factors that they deem appropriate, they can they can. Uh, determine a firm is systemic. That doesn't have to be a bank, it doesn't have to be an insured depository institution, it can be any financial firm. So any firm whose revenues are 85% or more from finance related activities can go, can be designated systemic. Um, then once a firm is de designated systemic, this is when the orderly liquidation authority comes in, that there's the potential for them to go into, into this proceeding. And if just taking sort of a step back and looking at the process. So if the Treasury Secretary, who I might add is a political appointee, makes application to the, he will make application to a court to place the firm into this orderly liquidation authority. The court has 24 hours to determine whether he is, he is right, whether the firm is in fact insolvent. Um, in that time, the company in question may not alert, and I, Representative Garrett mentioned this, in his, they may not alert any of their investors, any of their shareholders, any of their stakeholders to the fact that they may be subject to this, this proceeding. Um, and this is very worrying. First of all, the, the involvement of a political appointee. I think we've seen a long history of, of 
whenever there's an involvement by the, you know, the New York Fed or whatever in, in, in resolving um, a financial institution, there's a lot of controversy. People perceive it as being a political act. So the fact that we don't have, you know, just a regulatory agency such as the FDIC, but we actually have a political appointee involved is, 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 a, is an issue. And then it overturns, you know, uh, decades of, 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 of precedent in bankruptcy law. Uh, creditors and shareholders have generally had the power to put a firm into bankruptcy, not the federal government, unless the federal government is also a creditor. Um, so that's a, big, that's a big departure. Now, the one exception I will note has always been insured depository institutions. But when you want your deposits insured, you sign up for that um, and, and you will go into a proceeding under the FDIC. The FDIC is a lot more independent, I think, from the political branches than the, than the um, Treasury Secretary. Um, and they have a very strict process that they follow. So there's clear rules, everybody knows how it works and it minimizes uh, risk in that way. So that's a, a, a different proceeding. But, but generally speaking, this marks a massive departure and it creates a lot of uncertainty because creditors are not sure whether they're, so say it's an insurance company, whether that insurance company is gonna go into a typical insurance resolution proceeding or whether it's gonna go into an OLA proceeding and, and what that would mean for, for the company. Um, and I think that if you're in a, in a situation like 2008, that can only heighten panic because creditors, you know, when they, when they get panicked, tend to, to do uh, s s silly things. So that's, um, that's one thing. The second issue is this constitutional challenge to the CFPB, uh, which uh, Representative Garrett covered in quite a lot of detail. Um, again, it's two grounds. We, we've got this issue around the recess appointment. Um, and that's obviously a problem because the recess appointment was the only way that Congress had any oversight over this body. So, you know, that was the power, the power to, to um, appoint this director. So that's the issue from, from that standpoint. But looking again at the Act, um, if you look at, what, at the powers that the CFPB has, they have a power to take punitive action against lenders who offer loans that the Bureau later deemed to be unfair, deceptive, or abusive. And looking at the words of this, you need to note a few key things. This is an ex post facto determination. This happens after the fact. The lender may have been acting in good faith. There's no intent requirement. The lender could have been acting in a responsible manner in the sense that they're meeting all legislative and regulatory requirements. Um, and it, what I think is particularly telling on this is um, last year when the, the person whose who's recess appointment is now being so hotly debated, which is the current CFPB director, Richard Cordray, um, when he, t he told Congress that he believes it is probably not useful to try and define in advance what an abusive lending practice is. Instead, he intends to use his enforcement powers to retroactively punish lenders based on the view of the facts and circumstances in each case. Um, and that doesn't create a lot of certainty for, you know, particularly banks, and I think this is particularly true of kind of community banks, regional banks that deal a lot with consumers. They would be, you know, significantly impacted by this. So why is this a problem? Uh, well, ordinarily, when regulators yield broad power, their discretion is still limited by checks and balances, as Representative Garrett noted. The Constitution empowers the President and Congress, as well as our courts, to prevent regulators from running amok with excessive, arbitrary, and even partisan regulations. But Dodd-Frank eliminates checks and balances. 
Uh, as Representative Garrett noted, the CFPB is not subject to Congress's power of the purse. So it can claim more than $400 million a year from the Federal Reserve, and Congress is prohibited from reviewing the budget. Secondly, the President's control, even the President's control over the CFPB is limited because he can remove the agency's director only in strictly limited circumstances. And finally, as Representative Garrett noted, Dodd-Frank limits the court's review of um, the CFPB's legal interpretations. So this is why the recess appointment has become such a big deal, I think, because there are really other, you know, no other real limits on, 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 on the CFPB's actions. Then I think we need to move away. As I said, there were two levels. You need to look at both the statute itself, but also the rulemaking under the statute. And so moving away from kind of the, the strictly constitutional issue, but more generally the rule of law issue, is this issue of uncertainty both in rulemaking and in the general environment. So if we look at the Act, throughout the Act you can see that it gives multiple regulators discretion over the same topics. So frequently, and this is particularly true for example in derivatives, there's this arbitrary distinction in the Act between swaps regulated by the CFTC and security-based swaps which are regulated by the SEC. And it's very hard, you know, they're releasing totally different rules um, and, and just totally different regimes. And it's very confusing for the banks that have to apply them. It's confusing for the public. Um, and it's, you know, it's this, and, and then there are other instances in the Act where multiple regulators um, have, have oversight. But, you know, if something goes wrong, who, who ultimately bears responsibility? It's just not clear. Um, and then adding to that, I think this general uncertainty is the recent agency trend which uh, follows hot on the heels of the business roundtable decision in the DC circuit, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But there's this trend to release rules as guidance rather than rules. So for example, in two, October 2011, the FSOC released its sort of bare bones rule about uh, systemic designations, how they would designate companies that weren't banks as systemically important. And all the meat was in the accompanying guidance and they put out, so why did they release it as guidance and not a rule? Well, there's a good reason for that. When you release you know, guidance as guidance, it's um, beneficial from the regulator's perspective. It does not require the usual public notice and comment periods. It allows the regulator's maximum discretion to revise the process without formal revision. And most importantly, it is far harder for a market participant who feels that the agency has overstepped its authority to challenge uh, regulatory guidance in the courts. And so what we were seeing increasingly, especially in the DC circuit, is that um, most recently with them throwing out this SEC proxy rule in the business roundtable decision, is that where regulators overstep their authority, the courts have been, have been quite prepared to, um, to, to throw out the regulations. And so I think this is a, an elaborate attempt to kind of avoid that. Um, the CFTC, I might add, was not so lucky. They were pretty um, aggressively criticized for releasing all of their provisions relating to the treatment of cross-border swaps and derivatives as guidance. And I think they're now coming out with a rule. So I think the broad discretion that we have in Dodd-Frank is as much by design as accident. People said, well, we can't know when the next financial crisis is coming from, so we're going to give all the regulatory agencies as much power to do whatever they want to, to avoid the crisis. Um, but the problem is this flexibility comes at a significant cost 
both to you know our personal liberties and also you know it creates a, a significant economic cost um, which I think we're only beginning to see.